in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Round Table, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Nathan Lutz, and joining today is my good friend and co-host, Dustin Mulbardis. How are you doing, Dustin? I am great. I am refreshed. I have watched Titanic. I'm ready to go. That is exciting to hear. We are very excited today to have on our podcast Lizzie Haynes from the Millennial Movie Matchmaker podcast, a movie podcast looking at not just the movie of the day that's coming out recently, but also its relationship to other movies in its genre as each episode goes. Lizzie, can you tell us a little bit about that podcast? Hi there. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. Um, Based on the name, clearly I am a millennial and I just have always loved movies so much and much like you all I love revisiting my old favorites but I wouldn't be a true millennial if I didn't also like staying in the know with what's in the zeitgeist and so I decided to go ahead and combine the two and so I keep track of what's coming out. I try to review that movie to the best of my ability. And then I take a look back within that same genre and rate my top five. Always an enjoyable listen for those episodes. It's a great conversation, a great hangout, really, um, in those episodes. I particularly enjoy uh, the heist movie episode relating to some of the background information on Inception, which I did not know about uh, how Christopher Nolan managed to get that movie made. It's amazing to, 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 to know some of these back, some of the background information to these things. Yeah, absolutely. It, that's actually one of the parts that I like about this the most is I get to research some of my old favorites. Yeah, it makes movies so much more fascinating when you can get to know how these things all can happen. But today, I think for our question, with the movie that we are planning to go over today, you know it from the title of the episode, this is Titanic. In that theme, Lizzie, what is a movie that sank to the bottom of your collection that you rediscovered later and loved? You know, this is... So random, but I was home in the afternoon and I had a very rare occurrence where both of my children were napping. So I decided to just scroll around and I (laughs) cabined upon old school. And I thought to myself, I haven't seen this in so long. Quite frankly, I forgot it exists. And I watched it and I forgot how funny that movie is. I mean, I only thought about, because I think everybody remembers Frank the Tank and, you know, when he wants to go streaking from the quad to the gymnasium. So like everybody knows about that, right? Everyone remembers that. But like all these other aspects of the movie, uh, like Jeremy Piven's character is the dean. And Jeez. Um, it's just it's so, so amazing. And I mean, there's so and like at the birthday party where Sean William Scott makes a cameo and like Will Ferrell shoots himself in the neck with a dart and uh, like that slow motion where he pushes the cake. in. I mean, there's just so many moments that I completely forgot about that movie and forgot how funny it was. I loved it. So I uh, 
in true fashion, that is the most recent movie where I thought to myself that, you know, I, I forgot you existed, but I'm very happy to be reintroduced to you. That's great. Well, I will move to my next question. This one will be for Dustin. What is the last movie that you saw besides Titanic? Ooh, last movie I saw, I actually rewatched uh, Kiss of the Dragon, uh, Jet Li, and I think it's Bridget Fonda, Kung Fu movie. Jet Li's a police officer um, with very, very interesting bracelet full of needles and pins. He is half Kung Fu, half, uh, it's like the therapy where you stick the needles in. <laughs> acupuncture? Oh. Acu- acupuncture, yeah, he's, yes. Acupuncture Fu. Uh, and uh, he is... Uh, He's making his way. He's in Paris. It is an incredible movie, and I I love it because it is not too super CGI like The One was. There's not a lot of crazy wires. It was all very quick, fast-paced, and it's all real kung fu. Uh, Loved rewatching that one. With uh, a lot of the soundtrack is mystical. I won't comment on uh, mystical's current situation, but uh, it's great to mix that really fast rap with fast kung fu. Well, that is a very unique concept that sounds really fun. For me, actually, after last week's review of the Pink Panther movie, the original, it was noted that its sequel... The Pink Panther 2, A Shot in the Dark, was actually the one that made it onto the AFI 100 Funniest Movies list. So I decided to watch that, and, you know, I was pretty soft, actually, on my review of the original, but the follow-up, I thought, was just amazingly hilarious. And despite not having anything to do with the actual Pink Panther gem, unlike the first movie, uh, the character of Clouseau just got a hundred times better in the sequel, and the comedy just did absolutely amazing jump. It is time to jump to the movie that is the subject of today's podcast. This is James Cameron's Titanic, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Winslet, Billy Zane, Kathy Bates, and Francis Fisher. It was released in 1997 at the cost of roughly $200 million dollars which is almost double its original $110 million budget. But after 15 consecutive weeks at the top of the U.S. box office, the film would gross more than $600 million domestically and total to $1.8 billion worldwide raking in. So obviously, first in the box office that year, behind it was Men in Black, which for its entire gross, fell just a little bit short of $600 million worldwide. Uh, the IMD... B rating on this movie is actually a little bit lower than all of that would make you think. It's only 7.8, and similarly, the Rotten Tomatoes ratings are only 89% for the critics and 69% on the audience. But you know what? It won pretty much all of the awards that year, and you can just see why. Everybody knows what a production this was. I will not try to list all of the awards that this movie made because this podcast would end up Good being call. just about as long as this, as this movie was. And boy, is this a long, epic, epic movie. Uh, just to just to generally outline what it what it managed to accomplish, it tied for the most Academy Awards ever at eleven. It won four Golden Globes and was nominated for four others, won 10 BAFTA Academy Award nominations, and is on many, many lists of greatest movies, and crosses a lot of genres as well in terms of what it achieved. But it's time to ask, Lizzie, have you seen this movie before, and what were you expecting coming in this time? I have. Uh, So the first time that I saw it, I was nine, and my mom was pushing me to go see this movie and being nine I was not informed that it was about a love story my mom's like we're gonna go see this movie it's about 
the real story of the ship. And I'm like, boring. I don't want to watch this. I'm nine. Like, this was the same year that The Lion King came out. I want to go see The Lion King. And I didn't have a choice in the matter. So we went. Uh, and I absolutely loved it. I mean, so much went over my head at that point. But I just remember crushing so hard on Leonardo DiCaprio as a young nine-year-old, absolutely loving it. And I really didn't watch it that much in between then and now. So rewatching it as an adult was a totally different experience for me. I have so many opinions. I almost feel like I can't really get into it. But I think obviously as an adult, it hits harder watching the real facts of the Titanic and, you know, kind of watching the reenactment of how you can imagine many people suffered. Uh, that is, you know, obviously very devastating, but it is also so fun and so entertaining how they are able, the dynamic between Kate and Leo and the dynamic between, or excuse me, Rose and um, <laughs> Jack, Rose and Jack. I say, the dynamic between Rose and Jack and then the dynamic. It's a little hard to separate these things in this movie. It is. <laughs> the dynamic between Rose and Cal and Rose and her mom. I mean, I just, it's filled with character development and I give it a 10 out of 10. It is definitely quite a movie to come back to. Dustin, how, how have your thoughts on this movie changed over time since you first saw it? I, I also first saw it in theaters. My, my mom took me, I think, uh, if it's 97, I was 10. I was coming back from lacrosse practice, just showered. Mom said, we're going to Tinseltown. We're going to watch this movie. Um, I did know that it was a love story, which as a little boy, I was, that's where Obviously. I was like, Wah. taboo. No, no way. No, and, and it's funny, Lizzie, you, you mentioned um, wanting to go see a different movie. That same thing happened with me uh, with, I wanted to go see, I think it was Fern Gully. And my oh, dad- great movie. Yeah, but in, and I was upset that I didn't get to go because instead we went to see Dumb and Dumber, which is the hardest I had laughed in my life at that time. <laughs> so some, sometimes sometimes the parent's decision to go see a different movie is, is the best. Um, at that young age, I, there was a lot that I didn't get. Um, I don't, I, I probably not, I wasn't really crushing on the dreamboat, Leo. I wasn't really crushing on anyone at the point. I was, I was just kind of, uh, when the second half of the movie kicks in, and it's the thrilling uh, reenactment of the disaster, the the, the tragedy. Uh, you, you really are um, kind of captured by it. Uh, so the original viewing was one thing. The times that I've caught parts of it throughout my life, it's it's not one of those movies I would consider that I would sit down and continue watching the rest of. It's hard to make that three-hour commitment. But uh, when I rewatched it for the podcast, uh, it was all the things that did that went over my head as well sunk in all of the inner conflicts the uh the the, the subtleties of this movie aside from being a disaster trauma uh thriller uh, everything hit home and it was a joy to rewatch i i went in thinking am i going to remember all the cheesy details that we've been quoting for the last 25 years <laughs> or am i going to buy in to the 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 distaste like the 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 connections between each other and the separations, uh, particularly seeing uh, how Cal and, and Rose, th that dynamic, I missed that as a kid, but, but man, it's, it's really powerful now. In my case, I would have been about four when this movie came out, so I totally missed the theatrical release of this, which is really, really sad to me because this is obviously a movie that really deserves to be watched on the, on the big screen, and that explains reading things afterwards 
about how even after it had been released on video, it was still in theaters and still doing well. I mean, this this had such legs on it at the box office. But I think that this movie had a big impact on me, not just for the amazing visuals or for the story or other things, because I think I only ever saw it once as a kid, but... There is a pair of CDs out there, one by a bunch of French horn players in London and one by a bunch of French horn players in Vienna. And both of those CDs open with arrangements of the music from this movie for about 16 French horns. And I listened to those CDs so much growing up. That that sound, that particular sound, is just ingrained deeply in my psyche. So I will get back later to what effect that has on my listening to this to the music of this movie, and you may be a little bit surprised what opinions come out of that experience. But it was very interesting to go back and watch it again after a very very long time. Well, it's always good, Nathan. It's always good to have just our little segment, our popular segment, Nathan's French Horn Corner, which we do at the beginning of every show, and then we move on to later on talking about the score. But I, I'm, I'm a big fan. You know, I used to play the French horn. You That's did? Cool. You can start. I really you, did. You can get back to it. You can always get back to it. This is the perfect time. Like the fifth grade. <laughs> Practice makes better. And Lizzie, you can you can then do your top five and honorable mention French horn compilation albums on yours. Exactly. <laughs> Millennium French horn matchmaker. Sign me Something. up. That's my is it? <laughs> I think that it is time to get into the actual movie itself. So we're going to have a short advertisement break in a minute. But after that, Dustin is going to spoil this movie that I'm sure that nobody can remember what happens. Big time spoiler. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we miss, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals like you. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. And we're back. Dustin, for those who have somehow forgotten what happened in this movie, would you give a quick recap on what happened? It's a tall task to do a quick recap Not of a 195-minute movie. <laughs> Big spoilers ahead. The ship sinks. Okay. <gasps> The 1912 tragedy of the unsinkable ship Titanic is retold with our focus on young artist Jack Dawson, who gambles his way to a third-class ticket, and his chance encounter with a forlorn and unhappy Rose DeWitt Decatur, engaged to an overbearing steel baron in the making, Caledon Hockley. Rose and Jack begin a fast friendship that blossoms into romance while the Titanic sails ever faster toward what the audience must know is the ultimate fate at the bottom of the northern Atlantic Ocean. Their affair reaches its climax as the binocularless lookouts notice the iceberg right ahead, and the tone of the film shifts to the ship's final hours. Rose admits her love for Jack after a thrilling and claustrophobic aquatic escape, only for him to not survive the ocean's freezing temperature. 
All of this framed within the tale of a treasure hunter searching for a 54 karat diamond known as the heart of the ocean. How was that? It's actually very quick. <laughs> I think that summed it up nicely. This is a movie that has a wonderfully simple overall structure that is framed out well and very clearly, but it's in the details that this movie really makes its amazing strides. Let's start from what your thoughts are, Lizzie, I think, on the way that this movie is framed out about how this is really a film within an almost documentary, really an interesting way of approaching how to create this movie. Absolutely. So I, I agree. I think that there is something to be said about a movie that tries to respectfully tell a historical tale while also framing in uh, fictional entertainment. You know, they did it as well in Pearl Harbor, which isn't quite as good of a movie, but um, but I really like the way that they did it with Titanic because it is a very heavy subject matter. If you're just sticking to the story of the ship that sunk in 1912. And it would be very easy to be fatigued watching a documentary on Titanic. It would be very <laughs> easy to leave being like, I'm out of, you know, no disrespect, but I am depressed. Like this is such a downer. It would be very hard not to walk away feeling really fatigued. So I think they did a great job of adding this really hopeful element of a love story between Rose and Jack, and then um, to Dustin's point within his plot, also reframing it as Rose is telling the entire story, looking back on her life and sharing her experience as a survivor. So I, I really love how they're able to weave so many different subplots within this entire movie. And I, I just, I think that they did such a good job with that. And uh, I think that's why this movie is a classic. I mean, this is really, I think if you look up like some of the best, like one of the best romantic movies, I think you can't not help but think about Titanic. Absolutely. I'm, I'm with you with that. And I have to say what you said about, you wouldn't want, you'd be fatigued with a documentary of this. Mm -hmm. uh, a documentary of tragedies are, 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 and you have to think this is 97. So there is still, we have uh, 24 years of future tragedies to come. And there are things that you would not, there are things that you would not insert a love story into. Uh, I, I had forgotten about Pearl Harbor. I need to rewatch that. I, I saw that one in theaters too. Lo loved it. But what, I, what I'm thinking of is another, this is another tragedy where there's a subplot inside, uh, is uh, the Roberto Benigni movie, Life is Beautiful, where there's, there's the plot. And that was a, that was a, he won an Academy Award for that one. Uh, where there's something terrible that happens. You know the terrible thing is happening. But you are intrigued and enthralled by the love story and, and the class warfare inside of this movie. So I'm, I'm with you 100%. Yeah, I think that for me, one of the things that the story in this movie achieves at its best is allowing us to get a sense of everybody who's on this boat. It allows us to quite organically see everybody from the ship's designers to the upper class to the lowest class to the people who who work the ship, and everybody's viewpoints are pretty organically tied into this narrative. Uh, Dustin, you made a, a, a joke earlier about how the lookout didn't have binoculars, but it really is amazing to me things like that where granular detail and the amount of elements from the real Titanic story were able to be woven together into something that's pretty seamless using the fictionalized storyline 
that connects everything. I think I think that that is for me the triumph of how this is written. It's difficult not to include the the work done to show the extras, the families from different countries. I, I believe he won the ticket off of some. Is it Norwegian? The uh, Sven, the Norwegian oh, guy. Oh yes. And then when they get in the cabin, <laughs> the two other guys are like, "Where's Where's Sven?" So you you have the Norwegians, you have um, Italian families, you have uh, uh, there was a family of what appeared to be uh, Southeast Asian. The, 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 it shows the amount of and the different types of people on the ship and uh that it gives you a, a a depth to the entirety of the i don't know have the number it's something between 22 and 2500 people i think on the ship uh yes you, you spend a lot of the time on the upper deck with the upper class but anytime that you are aside you know aside from the kind of party dancing scene beneath decks most of the time you just see the what be considered the lower class steerage folks just in the background uh, being pushed around or being confused or held behind a locked gate. Uh, it, it re- really, really deep immersion with that, with that part of the, of the deck, we'll say. Yeah, I think it's also interesting how much this movie seems like total tangent bait, where elements like that, you know, Sven guy, that could have been a whole separate storyline. And if this were being made today, <laughs> it would have been like a miniseries, a disaster miniseries, maybe like the Chernobyl series that came out two years ago, actually, that took us through all the details over the course of maybe six hours or something. And you can just sense this movie carefully suggesting or hinting that these storylines are there and then saying, you know what, we need to concentrate on the real, on the real important things here. As we go through all this, I think I want to just, instead of trying to go over the overall how this movie works, I just want to touch on what to you is the storyline that most touches you or that you feel most connected to that runs through this whole movie because there are so many of them and i think it's really really important to to get those different viewpoints so lizzie i uh so i i don't know if i necessarily would say that i feel connected to this per se but i do have to say that this might be a major unpopular opinion my husband and i differ in opinion as far as this goes but i actually have a little bit of empathy for cal i feel like you go into it i remember watching it as a child and you just be like that's a bad man and um, <laughs> it's the eyeshadow <laughs> but watching it as an adult i I actually find, I think he has a really interesting story arc. I think he has probably the most interesting story arc, in my opinion. Uh, And I just, I loved watching that dynamic. Uh, I loved how, so in the beginning, you know, Cal is very much pleased with his lifestyle. You know, it's very obvious that Rose is not, right? Mm -hmm. She, anybody that has seen the movie knows that within (laughs) the first five minutes, it's clear she's miserable. But I think that Cal has really leaned into it, right? So he's happy. And I think in his mind, life is a big business deal. There's nothing that he can't coerce his way into. And I think he truly does deeply love Rose. Uh, but the one thing that he doesn't have, he has her hand, you know, her promised hand in marriage, but he doesn't have her love and he doesn't have her passion. And I think in the beginning of the movie, I've, almost feel sorry for him because you know in the scene where he's presenting her with the heart of the ocean he's like you know you're you're melancholy and i don't understand why like give your heart to me and i think he's in the only way he knows how he's trying to profess his love 
And then I think he sees her give her heart and her passion so effortlessly to Jack that I think that turns into this, his anger is processed and then kind of turned into this intense rage. Once his lackey sees them dancing yeah. in the like lower deck, then that's he gets really, you know, he's like, you are my fiance and flips the table, you know, Teresa. That's a scary uh, scene. Real housewife style. And it's, uh, it's definitely very scary. And I think at that point you see that kind of inner monster come out of him. But then towards the end of the movie, when the lifeboats are being given out, he has the opportunity to get in that. And that's like the ultimate karmic justice, right? Like he could go down in the boat and be like, ha ha ha, like, see ya, I'm going to go here and live <laughs> my life. Yeah. And instead he almost snaps back to reality and he gives his spot for, uh, for Rose. And I just, I find his character so interesting and I would love for someday, you know, they've got that show that's coming out, Clarice, which is like a spinoff of Silence of the Lambs. I want them to do a, of Cal. I know they can't. <laughs> so, you know, spoiler alert, he, you know, he dies. But I think it would be uh, in a different world. That would be fascinating to me. Lizzie, I'm, uh, I, I don't think it's unpopular because he's, he is, I think he's an intriguing character. But once, once the turn, the, the, the full turn is made where it goes from, it's not just love loss, but it turns to rage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, 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 it makes, it makes the character worth paying attention to. It's not just like a villain. Uh, it's 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 someone whose feelings you can maybe touch. Everybody, okay, not everybody. I've certainly had my heart broken and seen seen my ex girlfriend go off with uh, you know a former friend or whatever. So there's there's certain feelings that even like my, micro details about this guy is hurt uh, yeah. and 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 uh, the hurt animal turns into a raging animal and uh, the the second half of the movie is still filled with that. They're not filled with the second half of the movie is. Uh, peppered in with with this this the feelings between those those characters. Yeah, I think I, um, I like looking at like I'll use uh, without without going too much into it. I'll use Walter White as an example. If you all ever watched Breaking Bad, but you know in the beginning of the movie or the show, like you like him, you know he's a wet blanket, but you you know you kind of feel sorry for him, and um, but then he turns into this total unbelievable monster. Yet there's this side of you that still roots for him, and I think. I see that element a little bit in Cal and where you, you empathize with him. You don't necessarily want him to get the girl, but you at least want him to do well and, and kind of come to his senses. So psychologically, I just, I love a villain that you can make a connection with and, and has that backstory. So their motive is relatable. And you could kind of hope that he can be reformed yeah. somehow. Uh, were redeemed in somehow. Uh, with with Nathan, what you asked about what what kind of thread I connect with, um, I don't connect it through any uh, naval or military experience. I mean, obviously the White Star Lines wasn't military, but in terms of the the rank and file, I really like the dynamic between the ship captain, all of his first and second officers, uh, Mr. Islay, particularly the shipbuilder, played by Victor Garber, uh, Mr. Andrews. The, the the people behind the construction of the ship, the people that are motivated by the press, and what are we trying to get out of this? Um, can we be there by Tuesday night instead of Wednesday? Uh, the you know Captain Smith, this was to be his like retirement voyage. And the connection between these all these all these different interests pulling at what should be 
um, all right, set a course for New York and go. Um, and, and it ends up being altered so much. Um, it was, was something that I thought was really interesting about the reasons for the ship's failure. And yes, the love story is great too. There's so much that's great, but I didn't anticipate upon rewatching that the um, kind of the chain of command, uh, Mr. Murdoch and Mr. Hightaller, th these these people are uh, in between a duty and, uh, to to serve and to save and 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 help, and also a duty to survive themselves. Uh, and I I I, I was kind of captivated by that this most recent watch through, because uh, of course I could watch uh, Kate and Leo act at each other to each other and be an on-screen power couple for three hours. But the, the rest of the um, sort of mechanical crunchiness of why the tragedy happened uh, really pulled my attention this time. I think it is a good moment to transition over to what we think about the cast and the acting in this movie, as we've been noticing, as we've been noting, there are just so many great performances out of this movie. Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet are absolutely fantastic leading this movie as Jack and Rose. But there's a lot to be said about the cast overall and how they work so well together. Lizzie, who would you say stood out to you in this last viewing or overall? Well, I think... I loved, of course, just talking about Cal. So I, I think Billy Zane did an amazing job. But since I've already touched a little bit on Cal, I really love Kathy Bates's character. Play, uh, she played Molly Brown. I really, really loved her. To me, she was kind of the shining light in this, and I, I found her character to be so much fun because you know she's in this stuffy first class, and the funniest thing about this first class, right, is that you don't even necessarily have to have actual wealth because, you know, we find out later that a lot of people are, you know, broke and hiding it, you know, especially Rose and her mom particularly. So it's really just a fake it till you make it kind of world. And she, Molly Brown just doesn't play by those rules. She's like, I'm going to be unapologetically myself. And that is what gets her shunned you know the, all the other ladies will lunch and have tea without her and you know they're going to go for a stroll <laughs> around the ship without her and she's like oh well that's great i i need to i need to go work on uh, you know my my steps or my gossip that's what it is she's like i need to work on my gossip <laughs> my steps and my step that would be what i would say <laughs> i need to walk <laughs> around the titanic with my fitbit yeah i gotta get gotta get my steps <laughs> telling me that i need to I mean, hey, even even Jack is taking is taking ahead of his steps. He mentions, I think I've walked about a mile around the Titanic That's with you right. now. <laughs> Closing all of his rings on his watch. Uh, but I, uh, <laughs> I think I love her so much. I think that made her different was and what made her an outcast to the first class is to me what made her a superstar. Dustin. Who out of the cast stood out to you this time? Who out of the cast? Uh, so there's there's a, that question, and there's another question I want to answer, so I'll try to smush this together. Who out of the cast? Uh, it would be Murdoch, Officer Murdoch, and then there's also Officer Lightoller. These are, these, are, these are the first and second officers. This is, most of their screen time is in the second half of the movie. And or in the second half, I mean like the second... Act, in a way, yeah. Mm -hmm. it's like, yeah. Um, there is something to be said about being able to portray um, fear and uh, panic 
that ordinarily, I think some people might say, I don't want to see anybody suffering, which is is true for me most of the time, I, especially if we're talking about like something uber violent, like saw or hostile. Right, but, but right. Panic and and danger, and to uh, to be able to portray that uh, is is probably very difficult to do. Um, and but these particular, you don't see it so much from Captain Smith, um, the king from the Lord of the Rings. You don't see you don't see it so much from <laughs> the stoic calmness. But the the two other officers are they. It's almost as if they don't know what to do, and they are stuck between an iceberg and a hard place because they, they they're trying to hold it together, and their eyes are darting around, and they're it's almost they're always misted. They they have to be misted before every shot because to show the sweat on their face. Uh, so when it comes to acting out the first act, the, the seeing the culture is filled with. Uh, all sorts of other great themes, but uh, the people that are uh, on camera, when they're forced to pull their weapon and shoot it in the air, and they're forced to uh, have to handle the safety of these people, but they don't really know what they're doing. Nobody knew that this ship would potentially sink. Audience does. We know. They didn't know. Um, you know, I think uh, it was uh, Mr. Andrews says, yeah, she's built of iron. She can sink. Um, how much time do we have? What about the pumps? The pumps will save you maybe minutes. We have one, maybe two hours. Uh, and when that feeling, because the, the get the the, I was talking about the audience in in the theaters, but the people on ship don't even believe it's happening. They they don't think it's happening. Only a few people have that detail. But everybody that's part of the um, everybody that's part of the command, they all know. And showing that angst on their face, being able to portray that was masterfully done by those two in particular. I think what strikes me about that is how professional and real it is, where this is this is a group of what would be the modern day equivalent would be airline pilots. When you hear about near disasters where the pilots n hear about, oh, goodness, one of our engines is on fire and totally lost, but they're able to go through their checklists and go through the books and just work out in a very professional way while remaining visibly calm, but you can... in the way that these actors are portraying it, you can get just how panicked and, and unprecedented and, expect, and unexpected this situation was to them without them breaking into outright terror and running around or anything. So, and, and some of them do hit that breaking point. And that's a, a pleasure. It's a realistic to watch someone hitting their breaking point. It doesn't, doesn't seem like that fits together, but because it's eliciting that response from you. That emotional response for, oh my gosh, Mur Murdoch can't take it. He just shot uh, Tommy, and uh, he yes. pulls the gun up to his to his head. That that's probably the memory from that movie I remember actually from the first showing, and throughout throughout the uh, the years when I think about that movie, I think about kind of the failure of command and responsibility, and uh, one of several one of thousand of lives gets lost, but it it, it happened in such an emotional way. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's 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 tough to balance that if you're in that command state. Where do you all fall in if like if something were to happen? I know for me, I I tend to go into like fight mode, like fight or flight. Which uh, which one would you all fall into? I would hope that I would be with that string quartet, oh, except that my ability to play out in the cold is 
a little bit limited by uh, just the fact that playing wind instruments in the cold is A, going to go horribly out of tune, <laughs> and B, my breath support's just going to be like, duh! <laughs> it's not going to be good. It's not going to be pretty. So, so uh, one thing here, uh, what, what would you do? First of all, in this movie... I find that this was something I found unbelievable. How does Jack know so much about ships sinking as to where to go? I was wondering that. I, I think, oh, so what you're going to want to do is you're going to get on this side. And because it's going mean, to, I get that like sailors would know that if, if he was, instead of an artist, if he was a yeah. sailor, this is what's going to happen. Swim away. Oh, the boats are going to go out and then they're going to come back. Did he read the man? It's, it's like whoever, <laughs> you said the, did he read the in-flight? Pan? Oh, this is, this is what I should do in case of shipwreck. Right. They should have one. If we're planning Honestly, if we're planning the Titanic, they probably didn't even have a If This Ship Sinks pamphlet because they didn't think it could. Uh, so there was no pamphlet for him to read. So that's the first thing. I don't know how he knew that. Second of all, um, I would definitely overestimate my ability to survive in the water. Um, so I would uh -huh. be trying to be on the ship as long as possible. Um, I would obviously be in steerage. There's no way I would be in first class. I'm not getting on a boat. <laughs> not, I, there's no space for Dustin on a boat, so I'm gonna go find like a plank, and I'm gonna I'm gonna swim. I'm a, I am a strong swimmer, but I'm not not that. Maybe the coach the with the whistle. It, it, you know what? That's a yeah. meaningful part. <laughs> that's a meaningful part because that whistle ends up saving uh, Rose's does. life. Yeah, it does. So yeah, I will. I'll be I'll be the guy w with a whistle that swims away and dies, and then someone can use my resource to save their own. <laughs> <laughs> I will that's say my... there was one thing. Okay, so in this movie, there is a very stereotypical response of, my gosh, both Rose and Jack could have survived on that door. Oh, yeah. It was obviously big enough yes, for both of them. <clears throat> now, I think, I think that it's pretty clear that it wouldn't be able to stay above water with both of them on it based on the movie. It did bring me to thinking... You know, there's a lot of wood furniture on this ship. How were people not ripping cabinets out of these first-class suites or all these other pieces of furniture that are everywhere? There's apparently even a story that survivors told of Andrews, the ship designer. In the movie, he basically sort of freezes up and kind of like the captain, he just picks a place that's maybe his favorite place on the ship. And for him, it's that that clock in the smoking room. And, and sort of just hanged out there. But apparently what he was actually doing towards the end was running around the deck throwing wooden deck chairs off the ship t to try to <laughs> act as flotation devices for people in the water. And it's like, do that! More of that, that, please! Yeah. So I, I think Jack could have found his own door, is what I'm saying. Probably could have. My husband declared when we watched it together, and I, I do agree with him, that I think I would go into fight mode and be like, we're going to be fine, we're going to be fine. But there would I would hit a limit, and as like what you were talking about, Dustin, about like uh, Jack's keen sense on knowing exactly what to do. Like I'm directionally challenged, so I wouldn't know what to do. I would have absolutely <laughs> oh my no gosh, idea. That place so was amazing. My husband would like we've always said, like in the event of like a zombie apocalypse or something, like if I'd have to just be his shadow and he would protect me because <laughs> I'd be totally worthless. <laughs> At a certain point I think I just have to like be like, you have to guide me. You just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. <laughs> oh, my, my zombie, my zombie apocalypse move is first thing: go to the toilet, take the porcelain top off the toilet, and that's my way of getting out of the house. <laughs> then I get to my truck, and I keep in the bed of my truck. I call it a just-in-case ball bat. So I grab my just-in-case ball bat, and then 
I've got I've got two weapons, but the the bat's the one I got to go with. Um, I don't I don't own any firearms. Uh, it was a long time ago. So uh, yeah, it, I basically have a bat to go with. So you you're you're set then. You know what to do. I've practiced. I'd be one of those guys who comes out with a bunch of power tools as his entire defense mechanism and is running around with a circular <laughs> saw. saw. Or a saw. A saw saw. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so I think one of the things that we've touched on is just how granular the detail is, both in the plot and also in the creation of this movie. This is a movie with absolutely incredible directing of camera work and also the special effects, the model work, the interiors that they built that were then flooded for the movie. Uh, I'll start with you, Lizzie. What is an element of the production that stood out to you the most this in this watch? Really just... The way that they were able to depict the ship, honestly, was was so great. You know, towards the beginning of the movie, they do a full pan of the entire ship. It's shortly after it's left the dock. And I just I think especially thinking about the time, I mean, nowadays, if they were to make this remake, this movie it would be completely effortless. But I thought about that rewatching it of how because you can certainly tell that they've some computer animation into it. But it is still really remarkable what they were able to do, given the fact that it's 1997. And he was able to just depict such a beautiful ship and make it feel so lifelike. And that that really stood out to me. I think one of the things that I love looking at about how this movie was made is the crazy scale of models that they would build this this is an instance of combined cgi and model work where a lot of the shots used computer set extensions in order to depict the ocean around the ship or more parts of the ship but they were using these like 45 foot long models for a lot of the hero shots and then they would use a computer to composite on top of that cgi actors or cgi entourage people walking around the deck to populate it and this was an early use of that technology and it is impressive and creates an extraordinarily lifelike feel i was almost upset with myself that i noticed the cgi people that they, they, they were walking around like sims and, and, and I don't, i've never yeah. played the sims but i know what that looks like and, <laughs> and I, I was like oh man like i lost immersion for a sec but um that that I, I noticed that as well. I, otherwise, otherwise, I think you mentioned seamless uh, earlier. Um, for me, uh, when you talked about flooding the sets, when there's water in the room, whether it's just at their ankles, whether they're, uh, mm-hmm. w- whether it's uh, mm-hmm. Rose holding the axe above her head, Ugh, goodness, or and, and having to use the pipe to, uh, th- it seemed so real. It seemed like they sunk a ship and they were doing it in real time, and and I and I did feel that way. I didn't have to trick myself into that. Uh, that that work to make the rising water seem as the impending doom that it is uh, was was the best I had ever seen. Now, I don't watch a lot of sinking ship movies, um, but you know, submarine movies do this quite a bit. Uh, or uh, you know, I saw a clip from Aquaman the other day. I, unwillingly, I didn't want to see that movie. Um, and so just when, whenever that's done, I think that they've perfected that in Hollywood. They've, they've perfected how to make a sinking a sinking room <laughs> or a room filling up with water work. Uh, or if it's yeah. uh, an episode of Always Sunny in Philadelphia. You know, they're, they they figured out how to make that work, and I was impressed. Yeah, it's it's really impressive. It's, it's, it's amazing to look into exactly what they did in order to create some of these effects that 
Even today would be a little bit difficult with computers, but you would probably have done the entire ship in CGI today. But at the time, you're ending up with this crazy compositing where they would have a model that wasn't even in the water, and they would use footage of a real uh, World War II-era Liberty ship to get the proper scale of waves hitting the side of the ship, composite that onto the ship to get the waves and the wake of the ship, and then work from there. So then they would have separate models, one of which was designed to be the sinking ship model that was designed to be broken and submerged in water and was large enough to get those incredible shots of the propellers and things. Um, one thing that was a little bit sad to me looking, looking at and finding out is that a lot of the really amazing submer submersible shots at the beginning were actually model shots of little submersible <laughs> models shot over a model wreck of the Titanic. Like little bathtub boats? Yeah, yeah, over a model. Because, man, those shots look so beautiful. But they did intercut with all of the footage that James Cameron took um, on his many, many dives down there. Evidently, he spent more time underwater actually at the site of the wreck of the Titanic than passengers actually spent aboard the Titanic before it sank, which is kind of a crazy statistic. James Cameron is obsessed <clears throat> with the ocean because I think it was like maybe like 10 years later that he went to like <laughs> the very, very bottom of the ocean and that was like a huge headline of like James, James Cameron's one. <laughs> they did a oh South Park gosh. episode about it and it's... <laughs> He's, he's obsessed. So I actually honestly came at this movie from the other direction from you, Lizzie, where for me, the romance angle was not the interesting thing. The interesting thing was the underwater Titanic stuff. So seeing all the all, all the James Cameron documentary stuff afterwards and then sort of following on that, the uh, the, the, the Ballard documentaries of, of the original Dives to the Titanic was, was sort of interesting. See, to now me. I've got the picture in my mind of like little Nathan with his toy boat, like excited to go to, to see Titanic because <laughs> you love the ocean so much. <laughs> Yeah, and before we move on, a uh, uh, shout out to the animal wrangler because being able to get those dolphins to do exactly what they wanted to <laughs> at the front of that one model—that's hey, that's that a lot of awesome, work. a lot of hard work. Cool, cool, cool dolphins. Amazingly trained, obviously. You know, swimming in front of a boat going twenty-one knots. Um, so one thing that I'm going to bring up that I think will surprise some people, given my uh, musical tastes and elements that I have added into previous reviews is regarding the music. So I want to ask you guys what your thoughts on the soundtrack is to this movie. I love the music. I think uh, I saw, so I saw Celine Dion in concert. Uh, this was two years ago. I went with a good girlfriend and we were, we're both kind of closeted, huge Celine Dion fans. And she closed out <laughs> with my heart will go on naturally. She wore like the chiffon flowy dress, just like you'd imagine her. You must. And you've you got must. the recorder, you know, the doo doo doo. It was just, it was great. <laughs> and I love it. I mean, I think half of the reason why this movie is so iconic is because of that song. It is like the most recognized song it or at least it was for probably a good 20 years yeah and 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 that song and the overall soundtrack were part of the awards that this movie won the song is great i saw on the list that this is the 14th best song who made this list this is not outside of the top 10 
who's saying my heart will go on is not in the top 10. Wait, hold on. Not... <laughs> what, what's the number one song on that I got, list? I don't, I don't know. I just know that this is number 14. I don't know what the number one got song it. is. Got it. Okay. Might be Hakuna Matata. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm very, very but, but curious. I, I thought it was interesting to use the chords of the song 30 different ways at minimum throughout yeah. the movie. Uh, to not hear the actual song until the end credits. I believe the song had achieved some popularity before the movie was released, not sure. But we knew that's when you re-listen, and obviously that song has been part of pop culture for 30 years, um, but having it in there when, all right, a pipe just burst, a, a big steam stack just fell on Fabrizio, and you hear kind of a little bit oh, of gosh. recorder, do-do-do, crash. Like, whoa. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. It, it only works because the song's so great. I, the only other time, the, the the number one use of one song or one track in a movie for me, and I I'm not sure if Nathan you like this movie or not. But is a Little Miss Sunshine when they use that Devochka song throughout the entire movie, and it's done many different ways. That's kind of like the the perfect use of one song for me. This one, I will say, it did seem odd. It it, it worked well enough. The movie's too good for it not to work. But um, it did. You, you notice it sometimes. Uh, you know, uh, a bunch of porcelain, a bunch of porcelain plates yeah. fall on the oh, ground, gosh. and yes, you know, yes, near fun. Not the china. <laughs> yeah, well, they change it up so much. Like to your point, it can be they can play it in with a piano and have it be a little bit more uh, light and fluffy, or they can have kind of a woman haunting the singing it and then it becomes more somber and they're it's just they're able to just make it so diverse and it like you said it fuels this whole plot it's amazing they use that song as a through line that connects both the happiest moments and the saddest moments the one moment i don't remember it is uh when they are having sex in the car i don't remember it then but maybe oh, wait, no just... no no it does happen it it's is there? the like the the crescendo where she's <laughs> like, here. That's, she's put the, like the, the, the hand, hand yeah. and then the, all the condensation from the hand. Yeah. I remember watching that as a nine-year-old and being like, what are they doing? What's happening? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know so either. hot in that car? I didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, oh my gosh. Yeah, that that's definitely in that It is scene. there. It's definitely there. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so unpopular opinion from me i think that this movie is from a scoring and usage standpoint really amazing and the the the, the design of this score is great and anytime that the actual celine dion or the actual singing of my heart will go on and such all that is wonderful anytime that it happens it's great but there are a bunch of scenes that just take me straight out of the movie because you maybe start off with like some strings and brass and real instruments coming up and then you reach the peak of whatever song it is and for whatever reason somebody decided that they were going to use synth choir as the like pinnacle of epic sound and it is after listening to these CDs, the London Horn sound and Vienna We're horns, back in the corner, all my baby. life growing up, you, you you wanted it and it's back. We're back in the worst 
the worst thing. It's so thin, so cheap. It takes it it makes you look at the models and think, I think that's cardboard, even mm. though it's obviously the most epic model Ooh. ever made in a movie. That that is that is how I feel about those moments. And it takes over a lot of moments. You know, I think there's something to be said too, is when when you have aspects of a soundtrack that take you away, it really makes you appreciate the moments when all you're hearing are the sounds of clanging and banging and water rushing and things falling down and people screaming. I would rather hear the amazing sound design that they had in several scenes where that incredibly creepy hum of the ship coming apart and the creaking that is in the background is just, oh man, that's bone tingling. It's, it's so creepy. To talk about the movie this way is so strange because we're also talking about the tragedy, but we're talking about the awesome sound design of a ship breaking apart and I just said the sound of people screaming, uh, like to the idea that you have to appreciate this for the masterpiece that it is, um, even though it is that you, you know the subject matter is a tragedy. Uh, but yeah, the, it didn't. It did win the Oscar for sound design, uh, and it deserves to. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, very cool. I think they wanted to. To your point, I think it is. It's amazing because they really are able to very brilliantly put you in that position. You know, earlier asking you all, like, which role would you fall into? Like, you can't help but ask that question while you're watching it. And you're, you know, the vantage point of the camera is almost so it feels like you're up and holding on for dear life on the boat as it is tilted up. And so having all the sound there all really solidifies that, in my opinion, of making you really feel like you're there. And if you aren't appreciating that while also, you know, feeling that I I think it's supposed to make you feel somber and really think about what these people went through. So, I mean, there is such an element of the tragedy, but the fact that they're able to really give you that feeling, I mean, it's worth the Academy Award. It really is. It, it gives you that sense of the scale of the ship, the scale of what is happening. It's, it's, it's really great. And it's getting back to the soundtrack. And any time that it comes back in with actual voice singing, singing these songs, all of a sudden everything is better and everything's happy. But it's time to jump to the next segment of our podcast where we go over the movie superlatives, various questions where we will take what are the best parts of this movie, what we would change, what we think about it. So, Lizzie, we're going to start with the MVP for this movie from you. Can be the director, an actor, supporting actor. Lizzie. I'm going to go with Molly Brown, played by Kathy Bates. She is my MVP. Hmm. She is able to... Well, really, I think she helps fuel the story uh, because I guess I can kind of do a twofer, but my favorite scene in this entire movie is the scene where they're all having dinner. You know, Jack has been invited to dine with Mm -hmm. the first class. And, you know, beforehand, Molly Brown, she sees, you know, to put you back into the movie, uh, Rose and Jack are trying to hawk loogies into the water. And, (laughs) you know, just as... Jack has got a great one just built up in the back of his throat. Uh, the the mother, Ruth, and all of her, you know, her, her mean girl, you know, her Gretchen Wieners, her crew come over. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and everybody is just so uh, mortified on behalf of Jack. And they're, you know, they're giving him all of those looks, sizing him up. And Molly Brown, she's like, is that what you're planning on wearing? 
And you know, she lends him her son, you know, who just miraculously happens to be the exact same size. And it, uh, I just, again, I, I had said it earlier, so I won't go too far into it, but I just think that the dynamic that she's able to bring of being someone that com- comes from quote new money and she plays by her own rules and judges places judgment on people by the quality of their character as opposed to how many zeros are behind their bank account. I, I, I love that about her. And she seems like a good time Sally. If there's anybody that I want to get tipsy with on the Titanic, it's Molly Brown. <laughs> I loved her. Let's get her down to the fun party in the That's lower right. decks, yes. too. That's right, yes. I bet she could stand up on her tippy toes, too. She would She would be an excellent dancer up on the stage, a couple I'm beers. sure. That's right. How about you, Dustin? Who's your MVP? Uh, good choice, Lizzie. I will say good choice. Um, I have in the past, before I give my answer, I have in the past chosen... Uh, who, who's kind of a, a glue character that allows the allows the main character to do what they're supposed to do? Uh, I, I, I I normally am in the habit of not choosing leads as my MVP, but I will say uh, for this one, it's got to be Kate Winslet playing Rose. Um, I have at the time she was 21 years old during filming. I do not know exactly how old she's supposed to be in the film. She does seem you you know that she is fed up with Cal. Uh, her expressions of helplessness and the desire to break away from what she's being groomed to be is uh, both heartbreaking and maybe a little anxiety-inducing, but then to see the joy that her relationship with Jack brings and it reflected in her face is uh, something something that I rewound scenes. Can you say rewind anymore? I don't know. I, I press the back button, press the back <laughs> button uh, uh, to, to see again uh, the first time that her face rises up underneath that big hat when she gets out of the car. Uh, absolutely mm-hmm. stunning. Obviously, there's there's different uh, views of, of what beauty is. Um, and even in her sadness throughout this movie, she is uh, portraying what she's supposed to portray. Um, I will say there was, there was also kind of a strange thing I noticed 10 minutes before the, like act two begins which is, I think if you had to count the words, the line or the word she says the most is wait or stop. She doesn't say don't that often, but, but she's, it's almost like she's got this trepidation and she needs, and when, when Jack can pull Rose's true like self out, like in the party down below decks or uh, the loogie spitting thing, uh, the contrast of her sadness to her, to her elation was something that could have been written by anyone and maybe performed by anyone, but it was perfected by her. So she's my MVP. That's a that's a great choice. And you know what? I'm right there with you on Kate Winslet's performance as my MVP. I thought it was just incredible to see how well she depicted someone who it has retreated into herself at the beginning of this movie and maybe is sort of letting things happen and just feels like she has no way out meets somebody and feels like all of a sudden there's this transformation and you find out what the true her is. And I thought that that was something special. So next question is for the best supporting actor, Lizzie. For me, it is Frances Fisher. She plays Ruth, Rose's mom. And I think she is fabulous. I think she's wicked as all get out. And that is almost why I think she is so fabulous because I think it's very easy to 
blame Cal for why Rose is so unhappy. But in my opinion, it's I think it's really her mom. I think if you really dissect it, it's very clear that in Rose's mind, she is a puppet and her mom is the puppeteer. And, you know, there's that amazing scene when Frances is tightening her corset and she's yeah tighter and tighter and they're having a discussion. And at this point, it's very obvious that uh, there is an attraction to Jack. Uh, hasn't quite been taken. You know, they haven't had the car scene yet. So it hasn't been taken to the yeah. next level. But you're not to see that boy again. Yes. And so she has this conversation and then that's when you kind of discover, ah, okay, so this relationship with Cal is a business transaction that her mother has arranged. And maybe Mm -hmm. Cal is madly in love and that's why he's agreed to it. But it's very clear that that Rose is a pawn in order for her mother to continue her lifestyle. And I think that Rose realizes that and feels this intense realization that her life is not her own and that's really just due to her mom so I think that I think her Mm -hmm. mom's performance was so great because the subtleties you know there's that scene where they're at uh she's having lunch with her mean girls and you know she's like well the whole point of going to university is to meet a good man and Rose has already done that and yeah she's just she's a perfect wicked debutante but she's fabulous she managed to sell the desperation that, that, that you realize that is driving driving these moves that Absolutely. she's making. Absolutely. You know, really she well. knows how to turn it on when she's at dinner and be a perfect lady. But again, like you said, and then it's when the ship goes away and, you know, Rose doesn't get on the lifeboat with her with her is to me the only true time that you see any motherly love there is when she's realizing that her daughter isn't coming on the boat with her and they're watching all, all of these civilians just jump and fall to potentially to their death or eventually truly to their death. I, to me, that is the only time you ever really see her as a mother and not a woman who's just trying to use her daughter for her advantage. And you can see at the very end of the movie when her character is almost broken in a way, having having just lost everything and she goes to Margaret Molly Brown for comfort at the very end. Just you can you can see you know, this is this is where the real kindness is, and and maybe she needs that at this point. So, I think that's I think that's special. Dustin, best supporting actor. Yes, uh, my best supporting actor is David Warner as the lackey, the henchman, uh, Spicer mm. Lovejoy. Great name, by the way. I, I, I Spicer Lovejoy. I love the idea that he's the menacing character. I guess you could consider him the muscle, but then he has a name like Lovejoy. You know, it's 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 like uh, it's like that yeah. big giant Muppet whose name is Sweetums. Um, just it's, it's the idea <laughs> the idea that there's a little uh, split there. Um, he is part of both acts. That was something that I was trying to think about. I think Molly Brown was a, a, a huge a star of the first act, but in the second act. Uh, essentially, she she gets on a boat. Uh, so so I'm not I'm not I'm not clowning on that on that choice. I'm saying that the reason that Lovejoy stood out was his role in the upper class as the bouncer, the person keeping Jack away. Um, <clears throat> I think the scene I liked best with him uh, is outside of church when they're when they're when they're singing the hymns and uh, a couple of them keep eyeing out the window. Oh goodness! And Lovejoy comes out. Uh, Jack is trying. I just want to see her. I just want to talk to her. And he's like, "No, you get back to where you belong. You, you were here once, but we're done with that." 
uh, and then he offers like money. He says they want to they want to offer you this, and Jack says I don't want your money. And he does a great like villain move where then he takes like the bills and he uh, flips them to both sides to the left and right to the doorman and say. How about you see this rabble out? And then the two guys take the money he was offering and push them out. It's one of those scenes that in any movie that you see. Completely smooth. So smooth. Um, any movie that you see where like the bad guy gets his way early before some type of later comeuppance. Um, that, that's always a cool scene. I, I, I will say I do not know his fate. I can't think of it right now. I know that he gets his badass platinum gun taken out of his holster. Maybe the most intricate gun I've seen since the movie The Mexican. Um, that that gun, that that pistol, is incredible. <laughs> but um, the Cal's the one that uses it. I, how, how does his arc end? I really I don't. I think the I last can't. time you oh. see him is when, this is just to my memory, is when they're running. So Cal and uh, and he are chasing Rose and Jack, and that's when they go back down into the water. Yes, yeah. back down into the water, and all of a sudden, Cal starts laughing hysterically because he realizes that the heart of the ocean is with. Is and the, I think the, that's the, the last time. Line. Yeah, I want to say that's the last time. Yeah. You really see him every everywhere else, um, and it's almost the end of Cal's arc for the most part too. You know, they they're kind of like, all right, this is enough for the most part. You still you still see pockets of him, but that that's really where his dialogue ends. Something just popped into my mind, almost like a, almost like in a Bond movie or almost in in uh, a superhero movie, which is because like, imagine if like out on the boats or out in the freezing water, you have one last confrontation with Lovejoy, who's like swimming through the water, oh and God. Jack has to like fight him <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> why isn't Lovejoy the guy that Jack punches because yeah. he was trying to hold on to Kate's <laughs> or or uh, to, uh, to to Rose's life vest? Rose down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that would be, I, I don't know, we don't. We definitely don't need that. The movie didn't need that, but the image popped into my head, and I like it. So anyway, that's my supporting act. Great choice, great choice. You know, I was going to go for Molly Brown with Lizzie on her MVP, but just for just to bring up one of the other actors in this cast, because this is a cast with so many great performances in this movie, I do want to bring up the performance of Victor Garber as Thomas Andrews, the shipbuilder, who plays this role that you just feel this guy is humble and maybe a little over his, in over his head about certain things, but he's really proud of what he's done, but he also doesn't have any crazy illusions about about it being invincible or anything. He is totally willing to admit error or to admit that things could possibly go wrong. And he just seems like such a, a sympathetic character to see. So I, I just want to want to bring that performance in that he brings in the kindness and the empathy that I think is really great to see in some of the in, in some of these scenes where everybody around Rose is just completely stuck up everything. And it's it, it's great to have his performance in there. But I think it's time to move on to the hidden gem an underappreciated minor caster element. Lizzie. How did this strike you? My hidden gem, I, I think what I really loved, I guess this might not be something that's fully hidden, but I really loved the way that Jack just viewed the world. You know, he he has, he has says at, at dinner, he's like, you know, my, I'm going to get this line wrong, so I'm going to go ahead and paraphrase it. But he's like, life is just like one, uh, one wild ride and I don't intend on wasting it. And I just, I loved his, 
his outlook on that. And I think that you can really very easily see the effect that he had on Rose and how quickly he was able to really impact her based on the fact that he didn't live his life based on trying to obtain more. His life was more about having sustenance and value rather than uh, and relationships. Ra- yes, exactly. Like really focusing on uh, on the care, the quality of his relationships rather than the quantity and what they were able to achieve. And so I, I really did like that dynamic. I thought it was so great. I loved um, and just the, like the humor that he's able to bring to the table. You know, like there's actually a <laughs> lot of like funny moments and in the movie. You know, when uh, Rose is getting ready to jump. And he showed like he, they're introducing themselves and she's like, Rose, do a pre-cater. And he's like, you're going to need to write that one down for me. And I just, <laughs> I think his personality, his personality was so sweet and light. And it, you really do when rewatching it as an adult, I, I didn't think about that so much as a kid. I'm more obsessing about his bowl cut and how adorable I thought he was. But <laughs> rewatching it as an adult, I, I do think that there is something to be said about how that view on life can be very intoxicating. Dustin, how about you? You took my hidden gem, Victor Garber, as Thomas Andrews. I, I thought his uh, presence when on screen was uh, something to be uh, clearly paid attention to. Uh, he is the one that he doesn't uh, warble or question about the idea that the ship's going down. He brings up the blueprints. This is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It will sink. Um, I think the what you mentioned about based on the history and what the shot is is uh, what his character w- or what his what his that that person would have been doing was was tossing uh, chairs off of the deck. Um, but but what we see is uh, Rose and Jack walking through the leaning parlor, and what you'll see is that his legs are kind of not perched, but they're kind of braced. And he is standing up straight in a room that is that is like 20 degrees slanted, and and he's mm. and and that scene because there's like some electrical shock going on too. You've got some uh, maybe some bright lights outside from flares. Um, that kind of ending, like that goodbye between them. I didn't realize there was such a good connection between uh, Mr. Andrews and Rose early on earlier watches, uh, but but I I do. I do get that. Uh, I, I did get that this time. They do set it up that maybe he's he he's another one of these people in the upper class area who are able to pick out the uh, the real people among the throng. Yeah, and I I think the last thing you see of him is he checks his pocket watch, mm-hmm. opens the clock, and changes the clock to the correct time, it. and then closes it. Uh, that, that's that's always kind of pulled at my heartstrings because you know the captain goes down with the ship, but he feels responsible for what happened, even though there's a scene earlier where he's like. I told them to keep me, I told them to put the lifeboats on. Uh, yeah. And I've wondered about the necessity of that scene. I guess there might be a small percentage of people that don't know what happens with Titanic spoilers, it seems. Uh, <laughs> they, they throw the scene in where he yeah. was fighting to have the lifeboats. I don't know if that was done for historical accuracy, but I'll, I'll end my discussion there. That, that was my hidden gem, but you already talked about it. Yeah. You know what? Both of your hidden gems called back to me something that I was noticing on this rewatch where this is a very long movie but it's also a, an incredibly efficient movie where there's all these scenes where 
the first time it's mentioned, it seems like an offhand thing that's just happening for some reason. And then later in the movie, an action scene is going by and something that was explained earlier on doesn't have to be even referenced. You just know what it is. So that railing scene at the very beginning, Jack explains exactly what those people later in the movie are going to be feeling in the water. And as they hit Mm. the water and all those things, you don't have to deal with that. Early on in the movie, they have a whole animation and a little like infomercial about exactly (laughs) what it looks like when the Titanic sinks. And then later in the movie, they don't have to explain what's happening. You know from that little film exactly what the parts of the ship are doing and you don't have to zoom out and do wide shots that are impersonal the way that that would be so it's really impressive how some of those things happen um in in the way that the script is written but you know for me something that didn't get called back and that i would have loved to get called back are those musicians on the lower deck they're having so much fun in that party and you know because you got the string quartet at the upper levels and that has the famous real world world story of people playing on on the deck to keep people calm and to you know really celebrate the music that is so important to them what if what if the movie ended with like both of those groups coming together and doing that together you've got some bagpipe in there you got some drums and you can combine that with the string instruments and then they can all turn the bass player's bass into a boat that they can sail away on (laughs) the bass boat next we have the recast section to replace one cast member and suggest the replacement lizzie who would you replace in this movie so i thought a lot about this and i'm thinking if titan you know james cameron came back and which probably could happen because they're making so many remakes these days as a miniseries maybe right so if they were gonna go back and remake titanic i think i would probably want to see jack played by timothy chalamet i think that at least as far Hmm. as today is concerned when i think about modern actors i think he has got that x factor that leonardo Leonardo dicaprio had when he was younger i mean i think that the nine-year-olds going to the theater would appreciate him (laughs) but i think why i would (laughs) pick him now he just he has this charm to him you know he's not particularly buff and he's not the type of guy that is just going to be able to sweep you off your feet. But when you really think about Jack, you know, he's an artist and he's just made his own way in life. And like I was saying earlier, you know, he kind of just lives off of his wit and his ability to build relationships. And that is really how he goes from one day to the next. And I think that that ability to charm, I I think I obviously don't know to Timothy Chalamet, but I feel like he's been able to play that in some of his previous roles. And I, I see that in, in him. So I, I think he would be a good Jack if, if it were redone today. Sounds like a, sounds like a great option. Dustin, how about you? I also recast Jack and it's Jack Skellington playing. What? Uh, <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no, it's not that another great love story. Um, my recast is, um, and this was a problem I had. I don't know if we need an Italian best friend who speaks in broken English. I agree. I don't know if we need him. This is my recast, too. Oh, wow. So well, I'll just get to who I would recast, and I'll, I'll let you uh, elaborate more. If you want that kind of friend, I was thinking maybe, like, instead of an Italian-Italian, maybe he's an Italian-American, because Jack is American. Maybe he's, like, an American New York guy. Like, maybe a Matt, a Matt LeBlanc 
perhaps. Ah, got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like how you doing? Not how everybody you doing? On the... <laughs> in, in, instead of instead of literally, I think half his words are like Italian slang, and the other half is like, yeah, I go to America. I, I... Yeah, so that's yeah. That's my recast, man. I agree so much. I I don't have a whole lot to say here, except I I think that everything else it's it's not overly serious but there's nothing that is too cartoony in any other characters except for that one character so i i I agree i think that character needs to be changed out but man you've just given me a whole window into a a big change that i think would uh or really a small change that i think could have helped a lot so apparently leonardo dicaprio was pushing for his character to have a little bit more darkness or something in the background because he wasn't used to playing a role where sunshine shines out of his out of his every orifice like he does in this movie and i'm wondering man what if uh the real situation was that jack was on the run from like mafia in new york yeah, or something yeah. and now he now he's returning after after he's uh let things cool down in the past that would be and the matt leblanc character is actually kind of working for the mob and he's keeping an eye on this on this uh yeah, yeah okay like, a little exactly together, exactly and mark Wahlberg, <laughs> matt damon all waiting for him in new york <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my gosh this would work so well <laughs> And it would feel even better when he gets crushed by the smokestack. Yeah. yeah. Um, Let's move to the best shot for the movie. Lizzie. I think I loved, so I had originally written down that I really, really liked the scene where they're originally kissing on the boat because that's what I had thought of. But then after really giving it a little bit more thought, I changed it because even though that is a really great shot and it's so beautiful how the sun frames them, to me, the shot that sticks in my mind and really stays with me is at the very, very tail end of the movie when, spoiler alert, when uh, the uh, <laughs> Rose as, uh, as you know, in present day, you know, she's just tossed uh, in the heart Lizzie, of the in ocean. Lizzie, ca- in the cast, she's, she's cast as Old Rose. That's old what the Rose, say. yeah. So Old, oh, old no. Rose takes her breath and you're kind of assuming that it's kind of open for interpretation. You know, if you're if you're a spiritual person, you're like, is this her heaven? Is this or is she dreaming because she's just, you know, talked so much and relived this story. But either way, I just think the bet the shot is so wonderful where it pans over everybody on the boat and she mm-hmm. is at the absolute center. I have like chills even thinking about it. And she is back in that moment when they had dinner together. And Jack is waiting for her by the clock. And just that scene to me where she's walking up the steps and he turns and looks at her. And that, even just as a still, I think is so remarkable and really just kind of depicts how Rose almost personified the entire experience for her was in that exact moment uh, with Jack waiting for her by the clock. And I just, I think that moment was so powerful. Dustin, how about you? That is an incredibly powerful shot, and I was thinking about it earlier as well. All, and you mentioned the potentially using the the kiss on the bow. Yes. Uh, there is something about rewatching it this time that made that made that interaction so truly forbidden. And there is just this charm about the forbidden that makes it unspeakably desirable to like have that moment for yourself. But my best shot is towards the end. I, I did mention that uh, normally the sight of people suffering or the sound in, in movies is tough to deal with. 
Um, and so while the ship is, is very close to going vertical, you have, and, um, you have several people huddled around the chaplain uh, who is, oh who is reciting uh, scripture. And um, these people are looking for something to not literally hold on to, but just their faith. And then it starts to go even more vertical, and and the chaplain, I, actually, I wrote his name down, I don't have it, but he then he starts holding on to like a bulkhead or something. I don't know shift terms. I don't even know what a bulkhead is. But he starts holding on to something. There's probably five different, probably five different uh, people on the ship that are holding his hands, and they're all grasped together, and it really looks almost like a Superman holding up all of these people, and ju- juxtaposed with faith that the idea that this man is helping save these people in one sense at the end of their lives uh, was striking. I probably rewatched it four or five times uh, just because it was so well done. So that's my best shot. I mean, there's plenty of great shots, but that's, that's the one that stuck with me this time. That's, that is a completely amazing piece of the movie. I'm just going to call up a, a, a an effect shot for, for, for mine of very close to that. As the ship is almost completely vertical, you are starting to realize just how big this thing is sticking up out of the water when it is a scene of the just the horror and the awfulness of all the people who are in the water who've fallen who fall into the water and the ship is this vertical column above them and it's just towering and you see the the scale of the propellers and everything about that in the night and the lighting and everything it's it's amazing and tragic and and just um, something that's incredible that, that James Cameron was able to put to film. So that's going to be my best shot. Moving a bit broader, let's go to best scene. Lizzie. I really like the scene in where they're having dinner. I had mentioned that before, but I, I love that scene because that's kind of where you get to see the worlds intertwining. And um, I, I just, I really love the the dynamics together because again you've got all the major characters you've got mr andrews you've got cal rose jack ruth molly everybody sitting together and you know at first they're sharing life's philosophies and you can see that everybody has a different vantage point on how they're feeling about this dinner you know mr andrews and molly are you know really captivated by jack's words they feel like everything that he is saying about how he doesn't has no intention on wasting his life and you know he's like look at me you know i had uh one day i had five bucks in my pocket now i'm here talking to you lovely people you know i'm that one colonel sanders (laughs) guy's like yeah yeah and you know they're all talking together and so you know there's one side of the table that you know thinks jack is really charming and lovely and then you know you've got rose who's trying to hold the fort down because she's really pleased that jack is there but you know, she's also with her family and there's expectations. So you can tell that she's just kind of keeping her head down, being quiet and whispering to Jack, you know, which, which fork to use and kind of helping him along. And then you've got Cal and Ruth who are trying to be kind because remember they're in a setting with all of their peers, so they can't let their ugly sides out, but they are sizing up Jack. And to me, it's such an interesting scene because there's so much going on at this dinner and it's really afterwards that the plot starts to truly unfold. Dustin, how about you? Speaking of leading something towards its unfolding, there is a scene with Rose watching a little girl being taught to be proper and to sit up straight 
and it focuses on the girl putting the napkin in her lap exactly where it needs to be. Her mom, which it's not like the Duchess, it's one of these other plastic type people, uh, is is instructing her on what to do, and uh, that is kind of her breaking point or one of them to lead her towards something else uh she sees this little girl about to against her will be put into this world this vogue world that that she never wanted and uh that particular that particular scene of of just i don't want that for this girl and i definitely don't want it for myself and then that's when she makes her mind up that that had never stood out to me in this movie before but it did this time like golden handcuffs yeah yeah, it was sad. Yeah. And for me, I'm just going to go back to my well of music things. Just that <laughs> dance scene. <laughs> the dance scene in the middle as Jack is introducing Rose to the kind of life that, that he gets to live and the hilarious amount of wasted beer that apparently happens on this boat. They drink maybe 50%-ish of what they're actually served, and they spill the Another rest. Another tragedy. Um, Another tragedy. Uh, I, I just thought that that was such a, such a fun scene. And, and, and you can see them all acting of Jack's trying to pull Rose out of being as sort of quiet and pent up as she's been, and Rose is coming out of her shell a little bit and starting to become bold and finally decides to do the crazy toe stand bit and getting back to something that clearly she loved when she was a girl with ballet and and, and all of a sudden you, you you just get these wonderful human moments and the music in the background is just a bunch of people having a lot of fun on their instruments which always makes me happy it's a great scene when you said you're going back to the music i could have sworn you were going to say when the lead violinist begins after they said all right great playing with you and then he starts playing nearer my god to thee and the other and they come back to play i could have sworn you were going to it brings a tear it brings a tear to my eyes but i think that that scene while amazing for the string quartet itself and and for those characters i think that the dance scene is more indicative for the whole movie um which is which is why i picked that one uh so in a movie that had a budget of something like $7.8 million for the wardrobe. What is your best wardrobe or makeup moment? Really loved. I remember it always stood out to me. And uh, Dustin, you were talking about the earlier dinner that Rose is at where she sees the young girl. And it is that night. Rose is wearing this dress. It's almost like a plum color, like a dark maroon. And then she's got um, like -hmm. little red beads dangling from it. And I remember seeing that dress as a nine-year-old and thinking that was the prettiest dress I had ever seen. And I couldn't believe she was going to jump off the boat (laughs) in that. And then that dress almost became her undoing (laughs) because it made her slip. And I, I just, I thought that dress was so pretty. And held up for me because watching it as an adult, I loved it just as much. I mean, if I could have any piece, I am five one and I'm sure Kate Winslet is far taller than that. So there's no way that it, I would wear it quite as well, but if I could take one piece, that would be it. That is totally, totally amazing. Dustin, how about you? I know the one you're talking about. I'm, I'm going uh curveball here. I had two options and I'm going with a third unplanned option. This counts as wardrobe. Oh, that's the disclaimer. <laughs> uh, I was hating on Fabrizio a little bit. The scene where Murdoch shoots Tommy Ryan and then shoots himself, shoots him through the life vest. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a small snippet a little bit later 
just a tad bit later, and it's it's a panicked mo- moment, but uh, the actor mm-hmm. who's playing uh, Fabrizio realizes, okay, nothing's happening here, and he starts taking the life belt off of his dead friend in a in a panic move. And I was like, whoa, they just used this prop to display again the, the terror and and the fright of what's going on. So that's a, a, an awkward way to get wardrobe into that moment that I wanted to bring up. It's amazing how things like that allow you to have a through line that connects moments earlier on to things later on because that blood mark lasts through several more scenes when you see Fabrizio and even until he's in the water and just keeps reminding you the horrific things that have been that have been happening as a result of all this. Uh, for me, I'm just I'm going to go back to Rose. She has a hat at the beginning. That was of the one movie. of mine. <laughs> She's looking down. And then she looks up and you see her face. Can we go back to an era when we have like top hats and these huge broad rimmed hats? I, I, I don't know if that works for everything, but they're, they're, they're just absolutely fantastic. Totally spectacular. Come to Kentucky really. in May. Yeah. It, it, at, at, the der- at the Derby, they do it at, at the Derby. That's, that's where right. my that's where my mom got married. It was at Churchill Downs. No way. Oh, my yeah. gosh. That's amazing. <laughs> we were, yeah. We, we actually uh, you're, you're in Louisville, right? Yeah, I, I spent half my life in Louisville, and uh, yeah, that, that was just something that, yeah, they still do it at the Derby. If you want big hats, you got them. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And That's they're fantastic. just as classy as that one. Some of them are not so much, but... The outfits are just as classy. The people wearing them, I would disagree. <laughs> <laughs> just an excuse Imagine to drink way too much bourbon. And, yeah. at the bottom of the boat drinking lots and lots of beer in really swanky outfits, and, and that is the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> <laughs> perfect perfect it's the combination of things that is what that, that is what we should be doing in this world bringing the best of both together and making making a good time and um one thing i do want to call out here is just to laud deborah lynn scott who is the costume designer for this movie and who did did win the uh the, the award for for wardrobe for this movie um just really really amazing work next on our list is change one thing what would you change lizzie I would not throw the heart of the ocean in, back into the water. I, that, that still bothers me to this day. I'm just like, you've held on to it. What, like, what she said, like 80 years or something. I mean, it's like, what yep, yep. were you thinking throwing that in there? She, you, you have a granddaughter, your granddaughter, Lizzie, and she might want to have a daughter one day. And so that could be something amazing that you, like a, wonderful heirloom or it could be something that you generously donate or give it to this man who has devoted his entire life to i mean i don't know there's so many options but to me (laughs) throwing it in the i understand i understand the symbolism behind it because of course they, they paint a picture as if she's going to to the front of the boat in the same fashion on this boat in the exact same fashion that she went with jack she's throwing it in as if to say you know you you still have my heart. And uh, after all of these years and all the life that I've lived, I've never forgotten about you. And, you know, but I, I just, I, that scene pisses me. Off. And especially because she just, she also has this like, ooh, when she throws it in. So it's like, you kind of. And, and also the uh, the treasure hunters are all out there. They've they've paid to fly her out there on a helicopter. They've shown her all this great stuff. Uh, they've sat through her story where they've heard things that they will never be able to unhear out of her mouth. Great reaction moment. I, I think she, she did them dirty, I think. I think she 
She she should have at least told them that that was what she was going to do. But I I would have kept it. Dustin, how about you? This is uh, tough, and it's actually more of like a rhetorical question here. I I do really like this movie, um, and there's not much I would change. This it, this is about almost all movies. Is I have a really tough time uh, using suicide or the threat of suicide as a mm. a way to move the plot forward. Plot device. Yes, I, yeah. I, I don't. And here's an, I don't know what to replace it with. I think we just need to think about: Is this the thing that is this the only thing that could have led this to go? We do see a suicide in this movie. Um, I think there's three potential suicides. I think about movies like Forrest Gump, where you've got her out on, uh, you've got um, the the female lead on on the balcony. I think about a movie like The Princess Bride, where Buttercup is about to plunge uh, the knife through her own chest. I'm not trying to be macabre about this. I just, I, it's one of those things that some people know people that have committed suicide. I do. And I don't, I don't love it. Um, sometimes it is the only thing that you can do to, to drive home the seriousness of something. But uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of my answer. I don't know. I don't, I don't expect either of you two to say, oh yeah, this is exa- to follow up on it. It's just, I don't know how to move past that. You know what they should have done? They should have, just as you're saying that, I'm thinking, because what, what they really were trying to portray is that, you know, Rose, they could have kept everything with that dinner with that little girl and everything that kind of led up to those moments. But maybe perhaps while they're doing one of their strolls whilst gossiping, maybe they could have, I, mean, I don't know, maybe they could have Jack like below deck hawking loogies or something or yeah, drawing a di- a different... or... Because they, yeah, they start off the movie, of yeah, like, because they start out the movie, if uh, if you all can recall, I mean, there's tension between the two of them. You know, I'm sure there's obviously a physical attraction, but, you know, she she's like, she thinks he's rude, and he thinks that she's a brat. So I think that they don't meet and then immediately have this this passion. They they do in a sense, but not in a loving way. So I think there, there definitely could have been a meet-cute there in which they're able to meet under less than desirable circumstances and then you know have have the rest of the plot be so i i agree there's other ways they could have done that yeah i think that's that's an important thing to think about in these movies in uh you know it's 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 great and all to use these shakespearean contexts which was very much what james cameron pitched this movie as romeo and juliet on the titanic you know is is that really a paradigm that we should be advertising in our movie yeah and it didn't take that much away from the movie, but it, it was something that uh, when you see it enough, uh, it, 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 it started to wear on me as I grow into my 50s. Um, well, you guys know what my change one thing is. You need to take the synthesizer <laughs> that was used to make the choir sounds, stick it in the boiler rooms, then sink the ship and not give it any doors to survive add with. Add some French horns the... while you're at it, right? <laughs> add some. Add some extra French horns. I'm just going to plug once again the London horn sound. <laughs> Find it on YouTube. Listen to the first track and you will come back to watch this movie and be unable to listen to the soundtrack without feeling like it's like made by made made with like cardboard and some random guy on I don't know how I can now. after hearing it so many times. I mean, you should work for them. You should advertise for them. Jack. <laughs> Jack, I want you to play me like one of your French horns. <laughs> <laughs> oh man <laughs> all right well for the last of our movie superlatives i 
will go to the best quote of the movie. Lizzie, what is your favorite quote from this film? I think my favorite quote is, you jump, I jump. I loved that. It was used towards the beginning uh, when they have their, you know, as we've already discussed, our not so desirable meet cute. And uh, I love how that, you know, again, they don't actually like each other at that point. You know, they're both equally frustrated with each other, but that kind of becomes their almost the mission statement of their dynamic with each other. And then as they evolve, it that line is used later when Rose gets on the boat and she's on the lifeboat and they're lowering her down and they're lowering her down and she looks up at Jack and she she just does she can't do it. She jumps back on the boat and uh mm-hmm. you know he's like, You're so stupid, Rose and uh, she's like, You you <laughs> jump, I jump and uh I really loved that. I watching it with my husband, you know, we it's it's without getting too heavy, you know, because we we have children. So I'm thinking in my mind, I mean, it's not kind of just like an easy thing where you'd be like, no, 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 I don't want to leave you because I mean, somebody has to so someone has to provide for the babies. But I yeah, but I was thinking about that watching watching that movie where I'm like, you know, if we got a free ride on on a lifeboat what would I do? Like, could I really just be lowered down and like, why? Cause that was a, a part that broke my heart. A lot of times when you watched it, those like the little kids, there's a scene where um, the mom is holding her babies and she's on the lifeboat and they're hugging their dad goodbye. And they're trying to calm the children down saying, Oof. you know, everything's fine. We're going to see daddy soon. We're going to see daddy soon. But both of the adults know that they're never going to see their dad again. And it's yeah. just, it's, Oh my God! That yeah. see, you can hear. I I I almost put that in. It is the, don't worry. There'll be another boat for the daddies soon. Yeah. It oh, was, it just oh. it ripped me yeah. apart, and it yeah. just it yeah. was so hard to yeah. watch. And I uh, and you can tell one of the one of the children kind of knows, and the other one doesn't know at all. And uh, it's it's so it's sad. absolutely it's just devastating. So that mantra that they're the you jump I jump because I think um it it really does perfectly encapsulate their partnership that they have with each other Dustin in a movie with a million amazing lines what's your favorite <laughs> so often often what I do is I know I know we're looking for the best but sometimes I, I like to do my favorite quote instead of the best quote so this uh-huh. is this is uh-huh. during the uh, Lizzie mentioned the the great sense of humor that uh the Jack Jack's character has it, it's he's witty and quick and and once Rose is uh, kind of um, pulled out of her shell, she's also quite witty. Um, so this is during like the flirty banter when uh, Jack is showing Rose his art, which actually she just rips out of his hands and starts going through it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he asks why, why or he, he describes that he's focusing so much on this one model's hands. And uh, Rose goes something like, well, why, why would you do that? And, she go, and he says, she was a one-legged prostitute, you see. Good sense of humor, though. <laughs> And, and like that, that, that line is yeah. is one that I probably doesn't get enough love among all the other quotes of which yeah. I wrote down twenty, but I wanted to say it, so that's mine. <laughs> it's a it's a great scene, and then and then sort of the follow up to that again, wonderful ways of calling things back. Um, later later on, the draw me like one of your mm-hmm. French girls is is an amazing line that uh was like a trope at, in college um, among the architecture school in drawing class that was uh. It was it was always funny. But, you know, for me, I'm going to have to go back to the well of musical related things for my best quote. And I know you all think it's the it's been an honor line or something. 
and 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 the deep connection that that should be. But no, for me, the best line that those musicians say is uh, when they're in the middle of playing and they finish the song and they look around and it's chaos everywhere. And one of them says, what's the use? Nobody's listening to us anyway. And the other one says, well, they don't listen to us at dinner either. Let's play some Orpheus. <laughs> Orpheus, <yeah. laughs> I was like... I hear that. I get that a hundred percent. That's amazing. Thank you for thank you for saying that. <laughs> so, this has been a movie that it's an epic movie. It is so well made. The plotting, the acting, the set design, the wardrobe. It is all absolutely incredible to review. But before we get into our ratings, recommendations, and future movie selections. I'd like to give Lizzie another chance to plug her podcast. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, Yes, so it is Millennial Movie Matchmaker. It comes out every week on Wednesdays. A new episode drops. And I, uh, my Instagram handle is mill underscore movie underscore matchmaker. And I try to tease ahead of time what movie is going to be coming out. But quick recap, again, we do a new and current movie, and then my top five within that same genre. Always got to do an honorable mention because sometimes I like to talk about the bad movies too. But uh, so yeah, it's a little (laughs) bit of everything all rolled into one and uh, check it out. Sounds great. I do really recommend you go and hang out with Lizzie's Millennial Movie Matchmaker podcast. It is a fun time. For ratings and recommendations, Lizzie, how would you rate this movie on a scale of zero to five in half star increments? I would do it honestly for me. This is a 4.5. I love it. I just there's really not a lot about this movie that I don't like. I think especially considering just considering the times how it came out in 1997, just thinking about what they were able to accomplish in terms of effects, how they were able to, again, like we've talked about before, just take a story that was so serious and so somber yet add lighter elements to it to make it fun to watch there's action and there's romance and then on top of all of that they've got such quality character development so that you you care so deeply about who you're watching and i just i i think that this movie was brilliant it really is a special movie dustin how about you this movie is brilliant i don't love this movie i like this movie a lot um and I, I don't choose to put it back on if it's on TV, uh, and I don't choose to keep watching it. Uh, but it is important to watch, and everybody should watch it. And it's important to rewatch and notice the things you didn't notice before. Um, even by saying that this is a movie that I like very much, it's still a 4.5 because it is a masterpiece. I am surprised that the Rotten Tomatoes are, are like in the 80s and lately that, that things are, are like, like a low B range. I do not understand how someone could could rate it so low uh it 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 is a masterpiece i'm I'm not like a james cameron stan this this movie was the epitome of a blockbuster and it deserves to be beating out the incredible men in black (laughs) (laughs) a movie that i will rewatch more but isn't necessarily at the same pinnacle of quality yes it's getting a high rating even though it's not a favorite of mine um it's one that now i have such a such a greater appreciation for Uh, It's a reason why a podcast like this helps you appreciate what you need to. And uh, so, yeah, 4.5. Very, very good movie. Yeah. And, you know, for me, this is a movie that's in a genre, a a romance movie that I 
rarely find myself enjoying movies in in this area but this one it's got so many things not only is the romance pretty compelling in its own right but it's got so many other things going on that add context and add around that the period piece nature of it the disaster movie nature of it everything is all working so well together to make me enjoy this movie so i'm gonna join you guys on the four and a half star rating score um this is this is a uh an incredibly solid movie nathan nathan i gotta i gotta say we, my first my first couple in in as part of the round table we was kind of like oh dustin we're bringing him in as sci-fi guy but actually, half my movies have been romance <laughs> as well. So I'm I'm your I'm your romance guy. Now. There you you're go. a French you're a French one guy. I'm your romance guy, and we've got the rest of the knights of the round table. So yeah, I think we found my niche. <laughs> so a a movie that we can all agree is a true masterpiece. But for next time, Dustin, will you help me choose what movie that we check out? Yeah, absolutely. For next time, we are looking at all Bond films. We have three off the list here. The first one is Tomorrow Never Dies from 1997, same year as this movie. James Bond sets out to stop a media mogul's plan to induce war between China and the UK in order to obtain exclusive global media coverage. Option two, A View to a Kill from 1985. The recovery of a microchip off the body of a fellow agent leaves... James Bond to a mad industrialist who plans to create a worldwide microchip monopoly by destroying California's Silicon Valley? Or is it option three, Casino Royale from 2006? After earning double O status and a license to kill, secret agent James Bond sets out on his first mission as 007. Bond must defeat a private banker funding terrorists in a high-stakes game of poker at Casino Royale Montenegro. Dustin. What are we going to watch? You are making me choose between a Sheryl Crow title theme, a Duran Duran title theme, and a Chris Cornell, rest in peace, title theme. And we should choose a view to a kill. Sounds great. Sounds great. That will be an exciting movie. Once again, Lizzie, thank you so much for coming. We're really enjoying having you on the podcast. And for all of you out there, remember all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast. And check out the Millennial Movie Matchmaker as well. Uh, you can give us a like on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro, or email us at retromovieroundtable, all one word, at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Dustin? The first time I tried to change the world, I was hailed as a visionary. The second time, I was asked politely to retire. The world only tolerates one change at a time. And so, here I am, enjoying my retirement. Nothing is impossible, Mr. Angier. What you want is simply expensive. <laughs>